Hello and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? You know, I am most excellent. This one today, while it's not murderous, it's not necessarily mayhem or macabre, it is definitely, definitely mysterious. And one of my personal favorite mysteries that uh, haven't been solved. So I am on cloud nine about this episode. Good. And it's your birthday episode. So uh, when this airs, it's your birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. It is it is indeed. And I, I couldn't be more excited to celebrate by diving into this case. That should let our dear listeners know exactly how nerdy I can be. <laughs> so what is the episode today? So our next case delves into the mysterious Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich Manuscript. So for me, my first exposure to the Voynich Manuscript was actually as a youngster. There was a documentary on the History Channel about it, back when the History Channel still showed history stuff. So I'm showing how old I am there. I (laughs) even remember when MTV played music. So that's blast from the past. But the Voynich Manuscript absolutely fascinated me. I'd always been fascinated by languages. And at the time, I was going to a school called uh, Casper Classical Academy. the, that's not super important, except that it was one of the very, very few schools in Wyoming that still taught Latin, and it was actually a required course for us. And if you heard or read anything in Latin outside of class, then our Latin teacher, Mrs. Whitaker, would let you sign in a sheet that said, I had a Latin moment, and you got some extra credit points. And believe me, I needed all of those that I could get in that class. (laughs) To her credit, she was a really, really good teacher. I just struggled a bit with Latin, though, to be honest, after her class with the foundations that she laid, it became a lot easier for me to study. And it helps with any of the Romance languages if you try to learn them. And part of the Voynich manuscript dealt with Latin. And it just kind of caught me a lot. And then with the advent of the internet and you could see pictures of certain pages in the Voynich manuscript, I I spent a lot of time looking at it and then, you know, just trying personally to to figure it out because it was like, you know, what if what if it was me? What if I was the chosen one? Spoiler alert, I was not the chosen one, but I have had a lot of fun looking into this and not just this, but researching the people that have been involved in it. So it's a really, really fun and exciting episode for me and i hope our dear listeners will catch some of that excitement as well yes so what can you tell me about this thing the voynich manuscript was named after Wilfred voynich who discovered and purchased the document in 1912 and presented it to the public in 1915 Voynich lived from 1865 to 1930 but the vellum in which the document is written on has been carbon dated to the early 15th century sometime between 1404 and 1438. The handwritten script, often referred to as Voichinese, has been stumping experts around the world since its discovery. The origins, authorship, and purpose of the document have been debated, though there are many theories pertaining to it. Studied by both professional and amateur cryptographers, and this included World War II codebreakers, though none were successful. Many of the book's early roots are unknown, including the authorship. The text and illustrations are European, as are the paints and materials from that time period. The first confirmed owner was George Baresh, who is a 17th century alchemist from Prague. A 1639 letter from Baresh to Athanasius Kircher, who had claimed to have deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphics, was the first known mention of the manuscript. So Athanasius Kircher, he was a German Jesuit scholar and Polymath, who published around 40 major works of comparative religion, geology, and medicine. He's been compared to fellow Jesuit Roger Joseph Boscovich, and more importantly to Leonardo da Vinci for his vast range of interests. 
and he's even been honored with the title Master of a Hundred Arts. He taught for more than 40 years at the Roman College, which I think we'll probably be talking about later. And there he set up what was called a Wunderkammer, or like a cabinet of curiosities, basically, is what that is. So a resurgence in the interest of his works has occurred in the scholarly community in recent decades. Now, as you mentioned, he claimed to have deciphered the hieroglyphic writings of an ancient Egyptian language. Unfortunately, most of his assumptions and translations in the field turned out to be wrong. However, what he did do correctly was establish the link between ancient Egyptian and the Coptic languages, which allow for modern translations and, and even contemporary translations at that time. Now, some commentators have even regarded him as one of the founders of Egyptology because of the work that he laid down. Now, he was also fascinated with Sinology and wrote an encyclopedia of China, where he revealed the early presence of the Nestorian Christians, which was a sect out in, in Asia, while also attempting to establish links with Egypt and Christianity. So he published many substantial books on a wide variety of subjects like Egyptology, geology, and even music theory. He had this really syncretic approach, and he disregarded conventional boundaries between disciplines. For example, his Magnus discussed magnetism, but it also explored other modes of attraction, such as gravity and even love. So his best-known work is the Oedipus Egyptus, and that was a vast study of Egyptology and comparative religions. So this guy is really a jack-of-all-trades, and I find that he's criminally underknown. Yeah. Part of this, though, is that his books were written in Latin, and mm. they didn't get the translations that a lot of others did because he was so set on specifically writing in the language of the church. Now, in the 17th century, they were very widely circulated and contributed to a wide dissemination of scientific information. But he's not really considered to have made any significant original contributions. His were more just observations and some of the discoveries and inventions of the time were mistakenly attributed to him and later corrected. So that kind of facilitated his lack of contemporary recognition. Now, in his foreword to the Ars Magna Siendi, Sive Commentoria, which is the great art of knowledge or the combinatorial art, he gives one of my absolute favorite quotes of all time. And the inscription reads, Nothing is more beautiful than to know all. So this was a, a Jesuit scholar who really was searching for information. And he was well known at the time. So truly, it makes a lot of sense for Georg Barsch to send this manuscript to him to try and get him to look at it. Because at the time, they didn't know that he had failed to translate the hieroglyphs correctly. Right. So... Did he get a hold of it? So it is unknown whether or not Kircher answered the request, but he did try to acquire the manuscript to no avail. Bresch died and the manuscript passed to his friend Jan Merrick Marcy, who was the rector of Charles University in Prague. But a few years later, in August 1665 or 1666, Marcy sent the book to Kircher, who was a longtime friend. He attached a cover letter, which was still attached when Voynich acquired it. The letter stated that Dr. Raphael, a tutor in the Bohemian language to King Ferdinand III of Bohemia, said the book belonged to Emperor Rudolf and that he bought the book for 600 ducats. He believed the author was an Englishman named Roger Bacon. The Dr. Raphael is believed to be Raphael Sobierd Minishkowski, and the sum was 67.5 ounces of actual gold weight. The only matching transaction in Rudolf's record was a 1599 purchase of a couple of remarkable slash rare books from Carl Wittemann for the sum of 600 florins, though Wittemann's ownership is unproven. All right, so here we have another interesting character that enters the story, and that's Raphael Sobierd-Minshovsky of Subizin and of Horstein. So he was a bohemian lawyer and writer. He held several various secretarial, diplomatic, and judicial posts under Rudolf II, Matthias, Ferdinand II, and Ferdinand III. These are all kings of Bohemia and some that ascended to the emperorship of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, under Ferdinand III, whom we were discussing, Raphael was actually the attorney general. He's also known to be a poet and a cryptographer and famously also linked to 
this manuscript. Now, we talked about Bohemia, and to give our listeners an idea of this, Bohemia is the westernmost and largest historical region of the Czech Republic. So, modern Czech Republic. So, Bohemia can also refer to a wider area consisting of the historical lands of the Bohemian crown ruled by Bohemian kings, naturally. These include Moravia and Czech Silesia, in which case the smaller region itself is referred to Bohemia proper as a means of distinction. Now, Bohemia was a duchy of Great Moravia and later an independent principality or a kingdom, I guess, in the Holy Roman Empire. Germany at the time wasn't a unified country per se, but it was a collection of states, city-states, kingdoms, and principalities that were nominally ruled over by an emperor who was elected by the other counts of the region. So they would not be known as elector counts. Those could be like the king of Bohemia was one. And this really led to like later being ruled by the Habsburgs of Austria and Hungary. But it's a loose confederation. They didn't always have to do what the emperor said per se. It's like a even less unified version of the United States where the governors really hold a lot of power. So subsequently, it was a part of the Habsburg monarchy and the Austrian Empire. Now, after World War I, there was an establishment of an independent Czech-Slovak state, and the whole of Bohemia became part of Czechoslovakia. This did lead to some issues because there was a very large German-speaking population there at the time who wanted to remain part of the German Reich. Now, they voted to be included in the Republic of German Austria, it wasn't successful. However, between 1938 and 1945, these border regions were actually annexed by Nazi Germany as the Sudetenland. Currently, they are back in the Czech Republic, but it's definitely had a very interesting history. So I'm going to assume, though, that there's a bit more to this story with Voynich and Bacon. So Voynich took the claims at face value, but the Bacon authorship theory has been widely discredited. Though a piece of evidence exists to support Rudolph's ownership of the book, which was the signature of his head of botanical gardens on the first page. There are no records of the book for approximately 200 years, but it has been theorized that it resided in Kircher's correspondence at the library of the Collegio Romano, which is now known as the Pontifical Gregorian University. It had likely remained there until the troops of Victor Emmanuel II of Italy captured the city in 1870 and annexed the Papal States. Kircher's correspondence was among a list of books exempt from confiscation by the new Italian government. So the Collegio Romano, or also known as the Roman College, really, really fascinating. It was a school that was established by St. Ignatius of Loyola in 1551. Now, this was just 11 years after he founded the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits, who we've just talked a moment ago about a very famous Jesuit. So it quickly grew to include classes from elementary school all the way through the university level, and it actually had to move locations several times to accommodate its growing student population. But then Pope Gregory XIII actually blessed it with his patronage. And so the final seat of the Collegio Romano was built in 1584 near the center of Rome's most historic Pigna district. So today it's actually called Piazza del Collegio Romano. That's the area where it's at. And later in 1626, it added the Church of St. Ignatius, the college's founder, to it as well. And in 1787, there was a renowned observatory built there. Now, as you mentioned, in 1870... The revolutionary capture of Rome caused the college to have to move yet again. So in 1873, the remaining philosophical and theological faculties of the Roman college moved to new quarters and formed the Gregorian University, named after the college's patron, uh, Pope Gregory XIII. Now, though it was taken over by the Italian government, the original buildings on a full square block memorialize the early commitment of the Jesuits to education. And currently, its eastern wing houses the headquarters of the Ministry of Heritage and Culture, with the entrance on the Via de Collegio Romano. And the wing overlooking the square is home to the high school, Emilio Quinriero Visconti. So, it's... Again, it's it's just kind of interesting how, how so many different things kind of tie in and tie back to it. So 
I think, though, if I recall, something rather interesting happens shortly thereafter, though. Is that correct? Yeah. In 1903, the Society of Jesus, or the Collegio Romano, was short of money and decided to sell some of its holding discreetly to the Vatican Library. The sale took place in 1912, in which Voynich acquired the manuscript along with 30 others. He spent the next seven years attempting to interest scholars in deciphering the script, which he worked to determine the origins of the manuscript. So I waited a little bit into this to really weigh in on this, but Wilfred Voynich is such a historically fascinating character, and I don't think he gets much credit at all. His name is linked to this manuscript, as as it should be, but the things that this man did. So he was a Polish revolutionary, antiquarian, and a bibliophile. He operated one of the largest rare book businesses in the world. Now, he was born in the town of Tashalaya in present-day Lithuania. Back then, it was part of the Russian Empire, and he was born into a Polish-Lithuanian noble family. His last name was actually Habdank Wojnitz, and the Habdank part of his surname is the name of a Polish heraldic clan, and he was the son of a petty official in Poland. So he attended gymnasium, which in Europe, Germany, Poland specifically, you have different types of high school. And the gymnasium is the type of high school that prepares you to go to university and higher learning. So he attended that in Suwaki, which is a town in northeastern Poland. He then studied at the universities of Warsaw, St. Petersburg, and Moscow. And he graduated from Moscow University in chemistry, and he actually became a licensed pharmacist. But then in 1885 in Warsaw, he joined Ludwig Varinsky's revolutionary organization, Proletariat. And in 1886, after a failed attempt to free fellow conspirators Peter Bardowski and Stanislaw Kunichi, who had both been sentenced to death from the Warsaw Citadel, he was arrested by the Russian police. And in 1887, he was actually sent to a penal colony at uh, Tonka, which is near Irkutsk in Siberia. So while he's in the Siberian work camp, he actually acquired a working knowledge of 18 different languages, but not well. <laughs> so he got he, he understood how these languages work, but he, he wasn't even conversational in most of them. But it gave him a grounds and, and a love for linguistics. So then in June 1890, he actually escapes from Siberia and finds a way to get on a train. So he travels west on this train until he gets to Hamburg, Germany, and eventually he arrives in London in October of 1890. He was traveling under the assumed name of Ivan Kelchevsky. Now, at first, he worked with Sergei Stepniak, who was a fellow revolutionary in London, under the banner of the anti-Tsarist Society of Friends of Russian Freedom. Now, the unfortunate thing is, is Stepniak had an accident at a railway crossing in 1895, and it resulted in his death, at which point Voynich ceased his revolutionary activities. Instead, he decided he would become an antiquarian bookseller, and from around 1897, acting on the advice of Richard Garnett, who was the curator of the British Museum at the time, he opened his own bookshop at Soho Square in London in 1898. He was remarkably lucky in finding rare books, though, and he even found a Malermi Bible in Italy in 1902. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, Niccolo Malermi was an Italian biblical scholar, and he was credited as being the first to translate the Bible from Latin into Italian. So these are very, very, very rare. Then in 1902, he married a fellow former revolutionary, Ethel Lillian Boole, daughter of British mathematician George Boole, with whom Voynich had been associated with since 1890. So he was naturalized as a British subject on the 25th of April, 1904, and he took the legal name Wilfred Michael Voynich. Now, at this point, he has to figure out something else to do. His, what he does now is he opens another bookshop in 1914 in New York City. Now, with the onset of the First World War, Voynich was increasingly based in New York because travel back and forth wasn't exactly safe. We may have heard of the Lusitania. He stayed mostly in New York, and he became deeply involved with the antiquarian book trade, and he wrote a number of catalogs and other texts on the subject. 
Now, he relocated eventually his London bookshop to 175 Piccadilly in 1917. Now, also in 1917, based on rumors, Voynich was actually investigated by the American FBI in relation to his possession of the formerly mentioned Bacon's cipher. Now, the report also noted that he dealt with manuscripts from the 13th, 12th, and 11th centuries, and that the value of his books at the time was around half a million U.S. dollars. However, yeah. the yeah, and but the investigation did not reveal anything of significance beyond the fact that he possessed a secret code that was about a thousand years old. Hmm. Kind of anticlimactic ending. He did die at Roosevelt Hospital in New York in 1930, and he died of lung cancer. But to look at what he did throughout this, even before attaining this manuscript that, you know, put his name on the map. I mean, he was shipped off to Siberia. He learns 18 languages, basics. He escapes from a, a Siberian work camp. Like, these are things that if you were to watch all of this in one movie, you would say there was no way. Okay. So he's he, he's definitely a fascinating character. If, uh, our dear listeners have some extra time, like, Read up on this guy. He's 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 a pretty fascinating individual. So yeah. I mentioned that he passed away in 1930. What happens to the manuscript at that point? After he passed away in 1930, his widow Ethel inherited the manuscript. She died in 1960 and left the manuscript to her close friend and Nil. In 1961, Nil sold the book to an antique dealer named Hans P. Krauss, who was unable to find a buyer and donated it to Yale University in 1969, where his remains sits. There are about 240 pages, though there is evidence that some pages are missing. For stylistic analysis, it may have been composed in Italy during the Italian Renaissance. It was written left to right, and some pages are foldable and of varying sizes. Most pages of the Voynich manuscript have illustrations and diagrams, some images show people, plants that don't exist, as well as astrological symbols and other items. The physical characteristics of the manuscript have been studied by researchers. Based on the numbering of the pages in the choirs or paper usage, there were originally at least 272 pages in 20 choirs. The choirs have been numbered from 1 to 20 in various locations, using a style of numerals that, that were consistent with those used in the 15th century. The pages have been numbered 1 to 116 using a style that originated at a later date. Based on the number of gaps in the choirs and pages, some of the pages were already missing when Voynich acquired the manuscript in 1912. There is evidence that many of the books by folios or page unfolding were reordered at various times in the book's history and that they are originally in a different order. In 2009, samples from different parts of the manuscript were radiocarbon dated at the University of Arizona. These samples indicated that the parchment dated back to between 1404 and 1438. Based on protein testing in 2014, scientists were able to determine that the parchment was made from calf skin, and while it was average quality, there was so much care and preparation that the skin side is largely indistinguishable from the flesh side. So you're mentioning the parchment being used, mm -hmm. being calf skinned. So oftentimes this is referred to as vellum. And what vellum is, is it's prepared animal skin or membrane, typically used as writing material. It's often distinguished from parchment, either by being made from calf skin rather than the skin of other animals, or simply being of higher quality. This one being of medium quality, but it's still made from calf skin. So vellum is prepared for writing and printing on single pages, scrolls, and codices, or books. Modern scholars and experts often prefer to use the broader term membrane, which avoids the need to draw distinction between vellum and parchment. And it may be very hard to determine the animal species involved, let alone its age, without detailed scientific analysis, which is exactly why they did these protein samples and also biocarbon dating, which we'll discuss a bit later. Now, vellum is generally smooth and durable, but there are great variations in its texture, which are affected by the way it's made and the quality of the skin itself. So the making involves the cleaning, bleaching, and stretching on a frame or hearse, and the scraping of the skin with a crescent-shaped knife or a lunarium or luneum. To create tension, the process goes back and forth between scraping, wetting, drying scratching the surface with a pumice stone and treating it with lime or chalk to make it suitable for writing or printing ink, and that will create its final look. Now, we still make modern paper vellum, 
and it's made of synthetic plant material, and it gets its name from its similar usage and quality. And it's used for a variety of purposes, including tracing, technical drawings, plans, and and blueprints. So that's why when you go to City Hall and you request actual blueprints of something, and it comes out on a different feeling type of paper, that's usually the reasoning behind it. The covers and binding, though, were probably a bit different, were they not? Yes. The covers and binding, which were made of goat skin, were not original to the book, but there were insect holes on the first and last pages in the current order that indicated there may have been a wooden cover with tan leather inside covers. Many of the pages contained drawings and charts colored in with paint. Using polarized light microscopy, it was determined that a quill pen and iron gall ink were used for the text and figure outlines. The ink on the drawings, text page, and choir numbers have similar microscopic characteristics. In 2009, the ink was tested and found to have major amounts of carbon, iron, sulfur, potassium, and calcium, with trace amounts of copper and sometimes zinc. There was no presence of lead. Crude paint was applied to the ink-outlined figures, possibly at a later date. The ink was analyzed using different techniques. The blue paint was made from ground azurite with minor traces of copper oxide cuprite. The white paint was a mixture of egg white and calcium carbonate. The green paint was created with copper and copper chlorine resonate, and there may have been some atacomite or other copper chlorine compound. The red-brown paint was composed of red ochre and hematite and iron sulfide. The pigments used were inexpensive. There is evidence that some of the text and drawings have been modified using darker ink over lighter earlier script. Every page has text, mostly in an unknown language. Some have Latin script. Most of the characters are composed of one or two pen strokes. It has been determined that 20 to 25 characters would account for virtually all of the text, but there are over a dozen rare characters that only occur once or twice. There is no obvious punctuation in the text. Since the writing flows smoothly, it is likely not enciphered. There is no delay between characters, which would normally appear with encoded text. Along with the Latin letters, there is also a small number of words in High German. The lettering resembles the European alphabets of the late 14th and 15th centuries, but the words don't make sense in any language. It is unknown whether the Latin was added later or if it was part of the original text. There are over 170,000 characters in the document, with spaces dividing the text into about 35,000 groups, usually called words or word tokens. The structure of these words seem to follow some sort of phonological law. Some characters must appear in a word, like a vowel, but some characters never follow others, and some may be doubled or tripled, but others may not. Almost no words have fewer than two letters or more than 10. Some of the words only occur in certain sections or in only a few pages, while others occur throughout the entire manuscript. There are not many repetitions, and the few times that there are some, they appear up to three times in a row. There are some words that differ by only one letter and also repeat with unusual frequency. In 2014, the University of Sao Paulo, led by Diego Amancio, published a study using statistical methods to analyze the relationship between the words and the text. Rather than try to find the meaning of the words, they looked for connections and clusters of words. The team concluded that in 90% of cases, the Voynich manuscript systems are similar to those of other known books, indicating that the text is an actual language and not random gibberish. Linguists Claire Bowern and Luke Lindemann applied statistical methods to the manuscript, comparing it to other languages and encodings of languages. They found similarities and differences. Voichinese was found to have much more predictable character sequences. This further lends to the theory that it is an encoded natural language or a constructed language. So to put into perspective really, really quickly, these two modern linguists, Claire Louise Bowen is a linguist who works with Australian indigenous languages, and she's actually currently a professor of linguistics at Yale University and has a secondary appointment in the Department of Anthropology at Yale. She received her PhD from Harvard University in 2004 under the advisement of Jay Jasanov and Calvert Watkins. So her dissertation was about Bardi, which is a Nyulnyulin language and its verbal morphology. She's the author of two widely used linguistic textbooks, Linguistic Fieldwork, A Practical Guide, and Introduction to Historical Linguistics. While Luke Linderman, according to his own website, 
I am a descriptive linguist interested in characterizing patterns of variation and applying linguistic insight to the fields of medicine. I have a PhD in linguistics from Yale University and I'm currently a postdoctoral student at George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. So these two, especially Dr. Bowern, are modern linguistic titans who've taken a crack at this. So did Bowern find anything? So based on Bowern's review, there may have been multiple scribes that wrote the manuscript, possibly using two methods of encoding in at least one natural language. One method appears in the herbal and pharmaceutical parts of the manuscript, and the other appears in the balneological section, some parts of the medicinal and herbal sections, and the astrological section. There are minor variations in the methods, which are called Voynich A and Voynich B. There is a predictability of certain letters and a small number of combinations in some parts of the words. Due to the absence of obvious punctuation, some variants of the same word appear to be specific to typographical positions, such as the beginning of a paragraph, line, or sentence. There are illustrations on nearly every page and have been conventionally used to divide up most of the manuscript into six sections since the text can't be read. Each section is set up with illustrations of different styles and subject matter, except for the last section, which have only small drawings of stars in the margins. The sections are herbal, astronomical, balneological, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes. The herbal section has 112 folios with one or two plant images and a few paragraphs that are typical of European herbals of the time. Astronomical has 21 folios, including the traditional symbols for the zodiac constellations. Balneological has 20 folios, which is a dense continuous text interspersed with drawings, mostly of small nude women. Some wear crowns or bathe in pools or tubs connected by a network of pipes with water flowing from one folio to the next. The cosmological section has 13 folios, which are more circular diagrams but are more obscure in nature. This section has foldouts, one of which spans six pages and has a map of nine islands or rosettes connected by causeways and containing castles and what might be a volcano. The pharmaceutical section contains 34 folios with many drawings of isolated plant parts such as roots and leaves. There are objects that appear to be apothecary jars, ranging in style from the mundane to exotic, with a few text paragraphs. The last section, Recipes, are 22 folios and contain full pages of text broken into many short paragraphs, each marked with a star in the left margin. Five folios contain text only, and at least 14 folios, or 28 pages, are missing from the manuscript. The overall theory is that the manuscript was meant to serve as a pharmacopoeia or medieval or early modern medicine. Astrological aspects also frequently played a role in the medical procedures of the time. There are many theories as to where the manuscript came from. Some speculated that the author was 13th century Franciscan friar Roger Bacon, which Voynich believed, or it could have been Albertus Magnus. So Roger Bacon and Albertus Magnus. These are, again, two people that aren't known as well contemporarily as maybe they should be. Roger Bacon is also known by the scholastic accolade Dr. Mirabilis, and he was a medieval English philosopher and Franciscan friar who placed considerable emphasis on the study of nature through empiricism. In the early modern era, he was regarded as a wizard and particularly famed for the story of his mechanical or necromantic brazen head. He is sometimes credited mainly since the 19th century as one of the earliest European advocates for the modern scientific method, along with his teacher, Robert Grisatestis. Now, Bacon applied the empirical method of Ibn al-Hathim to observations and texts attributed to Aristotle. Bacon discovered the importance of empirical testing when the results he obtained were different from those that would have been predicted by Aristotle. Now, his linguistic work has been heralded for his early exposition of a universal grammar, and in 21st century reevaluations, emphasized that Bacon was essentially a medieval thinker with much of his, quote, experimental knowledge obtained from books in a scholastic tradition. He was, however, partially responsible for a revision in the medieval university curriculum, which saw the addition of optics to the traditional quadrivium. Now, Bacon's major work, the Opus Magus, was sent to Pope Clement IV in Rome, and in 1267 upon the Pope's request. Gunpowder was actually first invented in China, but Bacon was actually the first in Europe to record its formula. So again, another one of these guys that is, in his time, was widely regarded as 
a great scholar. Albertus Magnus, he is an even bigger character. So he's known as St. Albert the Great, or Albert of Swabia, or Albert of Cologne. And he was a German Dominican friar, philosopher, scientist, and bishop. We could do an entire episode talking about this person, but we're going to condense it. He was canonized in 1931 as a saint, and he was known during his lifetime as Dr. Universalis and Dr. Expertus. Late in his life, the sobriquet Magnus was added to his name, Magnus meaning the great. So scholars such as James Whitefell and Joachim Söder have referred to him as the greatest German philosopher and theologian of the Middle Ages. The Catholic Church distinguishes him as one of the doctors of the church. Now, Albert was the first to comment on virtually all of the writings of Aristotle. We brought up Bacon and his redoing the experiments of Aristotle, but that was only possible because of Albert Magnus, because he made Aristotle's writings accessible to the wider academic debate. Now, the study of Aristotle brought him to study and comment on the teachings of Muslim academics as well, notably Avicenna and Avieros, and this would bring him more really to the heart of academic debate at the time. He was a scientist, a philosopher, an astrologer, a theologian. He was a spiritual writer, an ecumenist, and a diplomat. So under the auspices of Humbert of Romans, Albert molded the curriculum of studies for all other Dominican students, and he actually introduced Aristotle to the classroom and probed the work for Neoplatonists such as Plotinus himself. So it was these 30 years of work done by him and St. Thomas Aquinas that actually allowed for the inclusion of Aristotle's study in the curriculum of Dominican schools. You have to remember that at that time, philosophers and thinkers outside of the church were often seen as heretical. So it really speaks to his power of personality that he's able to get the Catholic Church to not only agree that maybe this is not heretical, but to actually include it into one of their main branches, the Dominican, in their schooling. And the fact that he worked with St. Thomas Aquinas himself, that's something our dear listeners can look into, but he's another titan of that age when it came to philosophy and thinking from the Catholic Church. So just throwing into it, either one of these being possible authors, they were linguists, they were intelligent men. I'll give my final thought on that in a little bit, but I can see why people that study this would want to give credit to Albertus Magnus or Roger Bacon for this. So what did Voynich conclude? Voynich concluded that John Dee sold the manuscript to Rudolph. Dee was a mathematician and astrologer at the court of Queen Elizabeth I of England, who was known to have owned a large collection of Bacon's manuscripts. Dee and his scryer, spirit medium Edward Kelly, lived in Bohemia for several years. However, Dee kept meticulous diaries and never mentioned the manuscript. Some suspected that Voynich fabricated the manuscript himself since he was an antique book dealer and probably had the necessary knowledge and means. A lost book by Roger Bacon would have been worth a fortune if he'd been able to sell it. Also, Baresh and Marcy's letter only established the manuscripts exists, not that they are the same one. The radiocarbon dating on the vellum rules out any possibility that the manuscript is a post-medieval forgery, as the consistency of the pages indicates its origin from a single source. It's inconceivable that a quantity of unused parchment that size could have survived from early 15th century, as it was at least 14 or 15 capskins. So the method that they used here is called radiocarbon dating. And radiocarbon dating, also referred to as carbon dating or carbon-14 dating, is a method for determining the age of an object containing organic material by using the properties of radiocarbon, a radioactive isotope of carbon. So the method was developed in the late 1940s at the University of Chicago by Willard Libby. And it's based on the fact that radiocarbon, or carbon-14, is consistently being created in the Earth's atmosphere by the interaction of cosmic rays with atmospheric nitrogen. Now, the resulting 14C combines with atmospheric oxygen to form radioactive carbon dioxide, which is incorporated into plants by photosynthesis. 
Animals then acquire 14C by eating the plants. When the animal or the plant dies, it stops exchanging carbon with its environment, and thereafter the amount of 14C it contains begins to decrease as the 14C undergoes radioactive decay. Measuring the proportion of 14C in a sample from a dead plant or animal, such as a piece of wood, fragment of bone, or in this case a calfskin, provides information that can be used to calculate when the animal or plant died. The older a sample is, the less 14C there is to be detected, and because the half-life of 14C, or the period of time after which half of a given sample will have decayed, is about 5,730 years, the oldest dates that can be reliably measured in this process date to approximately 50,000 years ago. In this interval, about 99.8% of all the 14C will have decayed. Although special preparation methods occasionally make an accurate analysis of older samples possible. Now, in 1960, Libby actually received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his work. So, to give our listeners a, an idea that this is, it's pretty accurate. We at least can rule out Voynich as a potential author of this work. Right. So, what other fascinating information do you have for me? So there have been suggestions that some illustrations in the manuscript slightly resemble illustrations of Italian engineer Giovanni Fontana, who was familiar with cryptography and used it in his books. However, he did not use the same script as the Voynich manuscript. There is some speculation that the manuscript was a hoax sent to Kircher to make him look foolish, as this had happened in the past, though he'd been able to solve the previous unintelligible texts. Raphael Minishkovsky the friend of Marcy, who was a reputed source to the Bacon story, was also a cryptographer. He allegedly created a cipher that he claimed was uncrackable around 1618. Another theory is that Antonio Averlino, a 15th century North Italian architect, is the author. According to NSA cryptographers led by William F. Friedman, the Voynich manuscript may contain a meaningful text in some European language that was intentionally rendered obscure by mapping the alphabet through a cipher of some sort. However, almost all cipher systems in that era failed to match what is seen in the Voynich manuscript. In 1943, Joseph Martin Feely stated that the manuscript was a scientific diary written in shorthand. This has neither been proven nor disproven. Another theory is that the manuscript is mostly meaningless, but contains meaningful information hidden in inconspicuous details, such as the second letter of every word or number of letters in each line, which is called steganography. However, this seems unlikely due to the way the words are arranged. In February 2014, Professor Stephen Bax of the University of Bedfordshire used a method of searching for and translating proper nouns in association with illustrations. He posted a paper online containing 14 characters and 10 words. However, he died in 2017 and no work has been done to further his research. A popular theory is that the Voynich manuscript may be a medieval hoax, particularly since no one has been able to decipher it to date. Some scholars argue that the text appears to be too sophisticated to be a hoax. A number of people have claimed to have deciphered the manuscript, but so far none have actually proven this. Since 1969, the Voynich manuscript has been held at Yale University's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. In 2020, Yale University published the entirety of the manuscript in their digital library. So, I don't know if I mentioned this, I have successfully translated the Voynich manuscript. <laughs> It was ancient recipes. They were amazing. We made chicken. No, <laughs> the the Voynich manuscript, in my opinion, I I understand why this isn't necessarily the most popular opinion on it, but simply because of the impossibility it seems at translating this and figuring out what it means. To me, it does feel a lot like a medieval hoax of sorts given the possibilities of some of the authors the knowledge that they had of linguistics i mean we've had modern people create languages right jrr tolkien created an elvish language for his lord of the Rings series very very well james Doohan created the klingon language that is actually a full language that you can learn and speak Linguists made the Dothraki language for Game of Thrones, and they made it a legitimate language that can be learned and spoken. I feel like there's a good chance that that's exactly what happened here with the Voynich Manuscript. There's no Rosetta Stone to help us translate it, though. So 
my thoughts as far as the Latin and the Hochdeutsch or High German are that there's a good chance that those were added later. Mm-hmm. Could very easily have been added in by Kirchner, the Latin, because he wrote almost exclusively in it, and he also was German. To me, it just doesn't make sense that with the amount of people that have been working on this, that if there was an answer, that we wouldn't have found it, I suppose. Right. I do remember when Stephen Back said that he was making considerable progress, but even using what he did, like there's a reason that no further work has been done along his line of thinking. They they can't find it. They don't they don't see it. And I think it's fun. It's like, you know, one of those cryptic puzzles that they put in the New York Times and everybody tries to figure it out. But I don't think that it's one that we're ever going to to fix. And I don't mean to sound arrogant because I couldn't figure it out. Nobody else can. I am the littlest fish in that pond. But we have our own modern titans of linguistics that are also saying that this is well beyond them. So, I mean, the History Channel also had a an episode of Ancient Aliens claiming they did it. So, you know, um, <laughs> I'm not going to say I, I agree or disagree with that theory, but I guess it fits as well as any. Right. Disclaimer, no, I'm not saying Ancient Aliens wrote the Voynich Manuscript. Uh, <laughs> but it's been something that's fascinated me. It's something that I've spent probably way more hours than I had any business looking at and, and, and studying and trying to figure it out just, just for the fun of it. And dear listeners, if you can take a look at it and figure it out, yeah, send us a message, show us your method. We, yes, we want to know. know, we want to meet you and, and, and congratulate you in all of this. So, but yeah, so I know that this wasn't our normal bloody doom and gloom, but hopefully it's made our, our listeners think a little bit and maybe well, they'll, they'll dig in and do a little research of their own. Yeah. Now, on that, I do think that it might be time for the missing person of the week. It is, in fact, time for that. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this missing person of the week actually comes from some of our listeners. Is that right? That is, yes. I'll give a quick shout out to Cordell and Trisha Connolly. And with that, I'll let you take it away, Rebel. All right. So this week we look at the missing persons case of Roy George Fabra, who has been missing since January 24th, 2006 from Gillette, Wyoming. Fabra was born in 1967. So at the time of this airing, he would be 56 years old. He disappeared at age 38 and is six foot tall and 190 pounds. He is Caucasian with brown balding hair, blue eyes and yellow teeth. He has a scar from a vasectomy a surgical scar on his knee, and another from a childhood hernia operation. He was last seen wearing a light gray hooded sweatshirt with Marshall Memorial printed on the left side of the chest, Wrangler jeans, and brown and tan cowboy boots. He wore a brown leather Western-style belt with rawhide accents, a silver Western-style belt buckle with team ropers and other writing on it, a braided hemp necklace with a bare tooth pendant, and possibly a rawhide bracelet. He owned a small white pickup truck, possibly an older model Ford Courier. Vavra was last seen by his roommate at 6 a.m. on January 24, 2006. He had plans to go hunting with a friend, but when the friend arrived, Vavra was not there. He'd left a note saying that he'd be back by 11 a.m. when the friend was scheduled to arrive, but was not there. On the day of his disappearance, Vavra was seen leaving a convenience store at the intersection of Highway 50 and Force Road, about two miles from his residence. He was seen with an unidentified Caucasian male in his mid-30s with short blonde hair. The blonde man was driving a small white pickup truck similar to the to an older model Ford Courier. The men drove north on Skyline Drive. Vavra was an avid outdoorsman and often takes hunting and fishing trips. In December 2009, Jason Dwayne Larson went to the police and said Vavra had been murdered and his body was buried on a ranch near Gillette, Wyoming. Larson said he and two men buried the body. However, he later recanted the story and pleaded guilty to false reporting. If you have any information pertaining to Roy George Vavra, please contact the Campbell County Sheriff's Office at 307-682-7271. Yeah, that's that's terribly unfortunate. Hopefully someone out there knows something and we can bring some closure to the family or, or a reunion if at all possible. Yeah. It, these ones... 
they're all always tragic, of course. And it always seems to hit harder when it's it's closer to home. Gillette's not that far from where we were. So yeah. it's hopefully, like I say, we can bring closure or reunion. These are always, I think, probably the the saddest and the hardest parts of the shows that we do, which should give an indicator as some of the stuff we do is pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. So, but hopefully we will get some good, happy news out of these at some point. And if you guys out there listening know anything or have heard anything, please contact the, the authorities as Rebels given the the names and numbers to contact. So... And as That's, Bob always says, you can contact Crime Stoppers anonymously. Always. Crime Stoppers is a great anonymous organization if if you don't want to let anybody know that you know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so. Well, Rebel, I think that this has been about as much excitement as I can handle for one sitting. Yes. Yeah. So, thank you very much for delving into this with me it's a bit of a passion project for me so that was a that was a great birthday present appreciate you very very much yes and uh now if you're wanting to give your loved ones a great present you should send them over to listen to our podcast and where should they send them rebel so show notes are always posted on murderosity.com we're on most of the major podcasting sites so apple spotify and we're hosted on podbean so you can always listen there and then if you want to follow us on social media it's murderosity or murderosity podcast and we always accept tips and requests at murderosity at gmail.com yeah we'd, we'd love to have some conversations with you guys talk with us let us know what you think you know if you have any questions comments concerns suggestions we're we're always open and we do love to engage with our listeners. So Yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that's about going to wrap us up for the evening. What do you say, Rebel? Yep, I think that does it for us this week and we look forward to bringing more content in the future weeks and next week we have an awesome episode already lined up for you. Indeed, we do. Back to our regularly scheduled Murder, mayhem, and macabre, I think. Yes. All right. Well, everybody, you take care and you, you stay safe out there, and we'll catch you on the next one.